everyone. Don't Panic Geocast is taking a break this week to celebrate because I'm having a baby, or I will have by the time this airs, if everything goes okay. So please enjoy this classic episode of Don't Panic, as I definitely try not to panic. And we'll talk to you guys next week. of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, doing pretty good. Just got back from um, vacation. I mean, I say vacation because this one actually was a vacation. There was no say, It's va- vacation or field work. That's a fine line sometimes. <laughs> exactly. I took no... Um, no drills or anything else like that with me. No data analysis software, nothing. I just left. <laughs> so That sounds terrifying. It was. It was awful and exhilarating at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been up to? Oh, I've been working on, actually, one of my summer manifesto things was to get ready to teach a class. So I've been working on standing up a website to have all this class material hosted, and I'm going to try to make it an open class, record all the lectures and have everything online so that anybody can follow along. Uh, That is super cool. I know there are a lot of these MOOCs, as they call them, massive online open classrooms, Um, but you sort of explained to me what you're doing, and I already took a look at your webpage, and even though I only understood every third word, it's pretty neat. (laughs) (laughs) And I definitely think we'll talk about that some more because I'm using some of the tactics that the UBC group has used in their open geology and geophysics courses. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it would actually be a lot of fun to have them on and talk about it sometime. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, I guess I did say, I I said there was no geology, but it's kind of a lie, as you knew. So my vacation um, is got me thinking about what we could do for the show this week, and it's because um, my in-laws live in a town, Iowa City. It's where the University of Iowa is, and there's a big river that goes through it. And everything, my sister-in-law lives on the river, and everything about the river is controlled by dams. And it's something that I've been teaching a lot about. Um, there's a really great um, documentary called Damnation that's out uh, Patagonia the clothing company actually helped to produce it and it's something I teach a lot about and so every time I'm around a river I really think a lot about it and I think if a lot of people don't live near dams they don't think much about the effect of them right because you are fundamentally altering the flow of the drainage system of an area uh, right, exactly. And so it's like, if it's not something you see every day, like my sister's beautiful house overlooks, you know, I will say it's on the cut bank, but I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it overlooks this, you know, beautiful river and everything about the river is controlled by dam upstream. And then it then affects the dams downstream and the reservoir that they have constructed outside of town. And it's just, if you're not right there, it's not something you think about. So I thought it's something that we could talk about to get more people thinking about them because there are a lot of dams out there. There are. The number actually was staggering that there are over 80,000 dams that are at least three feet high in the U.S. alone. Right. I mean, 80,000. That's tremendous. Um, and of that 80,000, it's over 8,000. And that the stat actually was a little bit old, so I'm sure it's greater than this now. Um Over 8,000 of these are major dams, and when we say major dam, we mean a dam that's at least 50 feet tall or has a reservoir capacity of 
5,000 acre feet or more. Oh, acre feet. Really? I know. I was just... <laughs> I was going to have to um, apologize for the rampant, um, you know, English metric system problems that we're going to have today. Yeah, that's just an awful unit. So (laughs) (laughs) one acre foot is about 325,000 gallons, uh, which I know isn't a lot better because it's still an imperial unit. Uh, It's about (laughs) 1.2 million liters. Okay, that does actually mean less to me than 5,000 acre feet, but I think that's all my time in the oil industry saying that. So <laughs> so, so, what is an acre foot for those that aren't familiar? Okay, an acre foot, and I will say I had to look this up, <laughs> is a unit of volume equal to the volume of a sheet of water, one acre in area, and one foot in depth. And so, Which makes sense from the name. Right, exactly. Uh, it's 43,560 cubic feet, or if you want to get, you know really correct uh it's about 1200 cubic meters of liquid (laughs) that's a that's a reasonable number right right exactly so now that we have that um so that's that's what we constitute major dams a whole bunch of dams in the united states and i threw out a couple of um you know what's the tallest dam what's the largest reservoir but i will say before we move on like reservoir when we say reservoir versus lake reservoir is the name used for these artificial lakes that are created by dams so some of them could have been lakes to begin with. You dam them up, they get a whole lot bigger. Um, but that's the difference when you're saying those two words. Right. And even though like a 50-foot tall dam doesn't seem like much, that's a lot of pressure on the dam, and it's still a huge engineering challenge. So when Shannon says these numbers for the tallest dams, uh, just think of how much of a challenge they were compared to the challenge of a 50-foot dam. Oh, it's it's unbelievable, and I feel like that's a whole nother show. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> for sure, because this stuff is really unbelievably from an engineering and design standpoint. But, now, I didn't know this, actually, either. So, the Oroville Dam uh, was built in 1968, and it's actually an earthen dam, and this is in California, is the tallest in the U.S., and it's 770 feet high, um, which is really close to what I thought was the tallest, which was the Hoover Dam. Uh, built in yeah, that's 30. what I thought, too. I was surprised. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, and I I had to fact check that across a whole bunch of different things because I still didn't believe it. Um, <laughs> but Hoover Dam's <laughs> next, and it's about 50 feet smaller, um, 726 feet high. And the Hoover Dam, I'm sure everyone's heard of it, but it's on the border of Arizona and Nevada. Right. And it is wonderful to visit if you get the chance. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. Um and super scary. <laughs> but if, you think, if you've been there and you think of how high the Hoover Dam is, actually the tallest dam in the world is the, the Jinping Ai Dam. And it was built in 2013 in China. And it is over 1,000 feet high. Which is absolutely insane. <laughs> that's so much water pressure to be holding back. <laughs> um, I mean, that's higher than our mountains. And I'm making air quotes here. <laughs> in Oklahoma. That's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> But I tried to stick sort of to U.S. stuff, um, but I just wanted to throw that one in because that is unreal how big that is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So in terms of reservoir volume, the largest reservoir is Lake Mead, which is 29 million acre feet of water. (laughs) I love that it just pains you to say it every time. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and then once you get to units like 29 million acre feet, it's just it's meaningless again. It, it is the orders exactly of magnitude. meaningless. <laughs> um, so this is the lake, the reservoir created by uh, by Hoover Dam. And so I thought this was interesting too. The actual total capacity for Lake Mead, like when you put pen to paper, is 32 million acre feet. So why is it smaller now? Uh, I would say because it's sedimented in. Oh, yeah. Um, and again, that's probably a whole nother show. Uh, you get a lot, you trap a lot of sediment. Uh, 90 to 100% of a river's sediment at that dam location actually gets trapped behind the dam, which was something I didn't know that number. And that's unbelievable. Yeah, and I just did some really quick math while you were talking. <laughs> and that is a reduction in volume of almost 10% over 80 years. <laughs> wow. That is, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a whole lot. <laughs> um, wow, 10% in 80 years. That's unbelievable. Um, right, so that's, a, that's another problem created by dams. And I'm sure we'll actually have an engineering show about this because when you start to get into uh, Hoover Dam and then the next dam we're going to talk about, Glen Canyon Dam, the stories behind them, both like the human stories and the actual engineering feats that these things are, is really unbelievable. Whether you want them torn down or not, you have to appreciate what humans have done in this case, you know? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I guess we should move on then to the Glen Canyon Dam, which is one that's talked about in that documentary, Damnation. Right, exactly. So this is uh, Lake Powell, which is also a very common lake that you hear about in the Southwest. And this is on the Arizona-Utah border. And this is a close second to the size of Lake Mead, and it is 26 million acre-feet capacity. Um and both of these dams actually are constricting the flow of the Colorado River. So one's just upstream from the other one. And these two huge reservoirs and two huge dams, there's been, since they were built, um, there's been a lot of controversy about them. That's for sure. Right. So, <laughs> it, I mean, as we'll talk about, it affects wildlife and all kinds of things. But, of course, when these were built, maybe we didn't necessarily have the same standards and understanding of how dams could affect the downstream system. Right, exactly. Um, so Hoover was built, um, you know, at putting people to work after the Great Depression. Uh, Glen Canyon came a lot later, but we don't build as many dams as we used to. I mean, that, that was sort of called, you know, the era of dam building in the U.S. Um, but now we're starting to rethink a lot of these dams. Like, do we need them? Do we still use them for what they were built for at all? Um, and a lot of these studies are done by the Bureau of Reclamation and then the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which are the government agencies that were responsible for building a lot of these dams and run a lot of the dam systems in the United States today. So why did they build dams originally, other than the obvious one is hydroelectric power? But right. what are some of the other reasons? I mean, I think that hydroelectric power is a big um, driving impetus to get public and everyone else behind it because you know you think well this is we've already got this river here putting a dam here isn't a big deal um we'll just make some power but i mean there are other reasons too so municipal water supply is a really big one um probably the biggest one in oklahoma where i'm from and then also irrigation and flood control those are also the things that are cited for building dams and recreation which sort of goes along as a byproduct of any of those three things Right. So you make this nice reservoir and then people water ski on it. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, so like here in water supply, you know, obviously these are very political and controversial. As I keep saying, I'm trying to keep this to sort of, you know, facts because I, as a geologist, sort of have a lot of things to say about dams. Um, and especially when you start to really get into the stories behind them and, you know, do you need these things for irrigation and flood control? You know, maybe we can reduce some of our dependencies on these water supply areas for municipalities by, you know, integrating some water saving processes. So a lot of that's being talked about. But just in general, you put up a dam and you made a lake for your town to drink water out of. I mean, that's how, you know, every lake in Oklahoma has a dam behind it and was sent there to help support the communities around them. Right. And these dams really do alter the, the, the geochemistry of the water and the, the available habitat for wildlife. Right. I don't think I noticed, or not noticed, but knew how much that that really happened. I mean, you sort of know that in passing, right? Yeah, okay, of course dams are going to change the repairing environment. And by that we just mean, you know, the riverside environment because there's not a river there anymore. There's a reservoir. But actually, we're doing a lot of studies about how the geochemistry of the water, especially in these really huge reservoirs that we're building, um, and China has built a whole bunch of really large ones, and it's ruining fish habitat, and it's starting to change, you know, the whole geochemistry. You've got algal blooms, anoxic conditions, stuff that never existed before when these were free-flowing rivers. Right. And as you said earlier, that also is trapping a lot of the sediment that would be coming down the river, something like 90 to 100%. Yeah, unbelievable. And when you trap all that sediment, and then, you know, you've got to let water out, right? There's still a river on the other side of these dams. Um, you actually start to do things like called over-deepening of the river, whereas you would have sediment there. Now you don't, because when the river gets let out, you don't have that. So the rivers are carving really deep channels in front of these dams and that actually affects the water table all around the dam which is a big thing if you think about it because you've got this big reservoir and you're using it for a water supply so there's probably a city somewhere close by who's also tapping into that water table but now you're actually <laughs> lowering the water table because of this dam you've built that was something I wasn't really too um, familiar with until I started to read up on what effects lakes can have Right. And I mean, all of this weird stuff that happens with the water tables has been responsible for some of the dam breaches that we're not really going to have any time to talk about. But if you search for dam failures, there oh, yeah. is a huge list of them, maybe one of the more famous in the U.S. being the Teton Dam failure. Right. Uh, that one. And then the Johnstown flood, which is up in your neck of the woods um, as well, which yes. is still like one of the like one of the top natural they call it a natural disaster but it was a dam failure that basically killed you know most of a town um and it has to do with these things that you might not have thought about when you built this dam that you think is going to help everybody right like um, what if there's more fractured rock in the area and some of the water is <laughs> able to seep around the edges and then leak into the core of the dam which is what happened in the teton yep. case yep exactly um these earthen dams there's all kinds of stories during flood times about earthen dams coming very close to collapse i mean the mississippi river it wants to evolve we'll talk about that later that just means it wants to move and back in the 70s there's a really big flood and an earthen dam almost failed which would have meant that the mississippi would have taken out new orleans and that's pretty scary and that has to do with how the water interacts with the actual dam and the geology dictates that 
very much. Right. Hmm. It also, John, I don't I'm sure you know this. I don't know if everyone thinks about this. Big dams can cause earthquakes, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I think it was, was it Oswan High or one of the other dams? Mm-hmm. There was a really nice study of as the reservoir filled up, they just watched the micro seismicity around the dam light up because you were loading the surrounding rock and uh, deactivated faults. Right, exactly. And uh, we had a couple of um, wet years here. I mean, I say wet in Oklahoma. That's nothing compared to other places. But um, that was sort of thrown out there as, oh, hey, our earthquakes here in Oklahoma don't have anything to do with drilling wells. You know, it's just because we had a wet year and all the reservoirs are so overloaded, which I thought was (laughs) that produced some interesting um, commentary on the local news. Yeah, I would say then you look at, you know, 29 million acre feet versus I don't know how many acre feet for a lot of the reservoirs in the area much smaller much (laughs) smaller water loads seems much less likely (laughs) yes exactly um so we say this stuff but you can stand on hoover dam and look across at you know the the huge canyon walls that are you know a thousand feet high and you can see faults in them and these there's large displacement i'm well i say large displacement I mean, you know, tens of hundreds of feet on some of these faults. And then you've loaded up a, you know, 30 million acre feet reservoir behind it. That's kind of scary. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's really scary. And people are like, I I always like to listen to people when they're on Hoover Dam. Uh, I've taken lots of field trips out there. And they're like, hey, look at that color change. And I want to say, that's a fault. Water lubricates faults. Look at all this load, but, you know, I don't want to incite panic or anything. <laughs> right. And, I mean, well, Hoover Dam, too, also because there's so much uh, equipment inside the dam right. is just, like, constantly trembling as well. Yes. It's, oh. it's a slightly terrifying experience for many reasons. No, oh, it really is. Um, once we sort of start to I know, talk about sort of the climate of the southwest and stuff, we'll come back to revisit Glen Canyon Dam because during a really large El Nino event, they talk about hearing like being inside the dam, the controllers, and hearing the dam change because of all the influx of water. And that just, it like makes my chest tight to even think about how scary that must have been. <laughs> yes. Oh. But, um, so there's lots more to talk about that. But just as a, as a first thing, I think water, uh, water supply is one of the major things, reasons why we build dam. But there's also irrigation and flood control. Right. So... Flood control, you're trying to prevent the river from taking out anybody that's downstream during heavy precipitation events by blocking the dam or closing it way down and storing that water in the reservoir and then releasing it over time. But the immediate problem is, <laughs> but you're adding all this water. <laughs> what if you get right. too much? <laughs> and so now you've got a double problem, right? You've got a lot of rainfall. People are probably already flooding anyway. And now you're going to have to let go some of this water so you don't have catastrophic dam failure. So a lot of times dams are actually making flood control worse. And so instead of just flooding a little bit, how it would have maybe happened in nature, you're actually flooding catastrophically every time you flood. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of studies about this. How like by saying that dams are built for flood control, it's actually 
we have we have enough data i think now over you know enough decades to see that we're actually causing worse floods they might be less frequent but they're worse than they would have been normally so dams flood control is not really a valid reason to build anymore well, yeah, and then irrigation that you had coupled with that is very directly related. Basically, mm-hmm. you're just controlling how much water is going to be available at what times of year so that your crops don't get wiped out. Right, exactly. Um, and there's obviously this one is definitely very politically fraught because, you know, this farmer that's upstream just gets more water than the farmer's downstream because you're blocking the river, right? So there's a lot of fight about who gets the water for irrigation? You know, how do you decide these kind of things? I mean, we've dammed the Colorado River so much that it doesn't even flow into Mexico anymore. Right. (laughs) That's a big deal. The Colorado's a big river, right? I mean, the Grand Canyon? Come on. And it doesn't even make it to Mexico. Yes, (laughs) we use all the water before then. (laughs) Right, exactly. So the irrigation thing is a big political issue. Um, and then the flood control, I think we can really just wipe that one out. There's been so much work done that says that, you know, it doesn't actually prevent or protect communities that are downstream. And in fact, the building of these reservoirs, nearly always there are people displaced that live right there, right? So it certainly didn't help them with flood control. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can think of examples uh, where I grew up. And actually where I've done some internships as well, where there were roads that would just disappear into the reservoir because there had been farmland down there before and houses. And in fact, in one case, there's actually part of a city, uh, Montanay, near where I grew up, that is submerged. People go diving and climb on buildings and things. Uh, That's really weird because I'm guessing that's, you know, a sort of modern city. That's got it. Well, you know, sort of modern. That's sort of really weird to see. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, there's a whole and and the documentary damnation like I'm I'm a huge proponent of this because it just brings up I, I show it every year in my intro geology class and then I ask students you know what about this did you not like what did you learn right and so many of them were like I've never even thought of any of the things that they talk about this flood control the irrigation um, and stuff like that and one of those things besides losing people losing their immediate homes I mean there's all kinds of archaeological things that have been drowned out um you know you talked about the Aswan Dam and that definitely when that was built um and that's in Egypt you know we lost a lot of world treasures you know temples that were carved into the rocks when we built Glen Canyon the same thing and so that's um that's something to think about too you know not just displacing modern people but what we're doing to the archaeology of the region and what we're losing in these right definitely Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. But so we can move on from flood control. And I think the biggest one and the one that still gets a lot of um, a lot of press is power supply. Right, because you can generate a lot of power and it is effectively clean power. Um, yes, um, you can say effectively clean, but then you have to think about what you're doing environmentally by, you know, creating these big reservoirs. But the actual hydroelectric generation, you know, it's not releasing a whole bunch of fossil fuels into the air and stuff like that. So that's why it gets, um, it gets championed as clean power. So you have to weigh these, these buzzwords, right? When you're talking about creating a dam for hydroelectricity purposes. 
Right. Hence, yeah, hence the effectively. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a good way to generate a lot of power. Oh, yeah. Oh, a whole lot. Um, so Hoover Dam, because that's the most famous, uh, it generates about 4.5 billion kilowatt hours per year, which is a meaningless number to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm going to make that number even a little bit more meaningless with one of my favorite awesome. statistics. <laughs> so earlier this year, there was a magnitude 7.8 earthquake in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. Earthquakes release about 10% of their energy to actually seismic radiation that shakes the ground. Okay. The amount of energy released by that magnitude 7.8 to shake the ground over a period of 75 seconds is the equivalent to what the Hoover Dam produces in two years. That's an impressive stat. <laughs> so, <laughs> to make a meaningless number even a little bit more meaningless. Uh, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> it's a lot of power. <laughs> Oh, man, that was an awesome stat. Well done. Um, <laughs> a little more meaning, meaningful might be that to say that this serves 8 million people in Arizona, Southern California, and Nevada per year. That's like 100% of their electricity for 8 million people. It's a big, that's a big chunk of electricity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I think about... Um, power generation, I think about the Itaipu Dam, and the reason I think about this dam, it's in, uh, it's on the border of Brazil and Paraguay, and because when I went to an AGU meeting of the Americas in Brazil, this was the town we were located in, and we took a tour of this place, I have never seen, I think, a bigger structure in my life. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was unbelievable. Um, we took this tour of it. It was really great. It's been named like one of the man-made wonders of the world, this place. Um, and it dams the Piranha River, which is the seventh largest in the world. And so it's a really big dam that's damming a really big river. And their power generation is unbelievable. Yeah, I'm looking at some pictures right now because I have never seen it in real life. It is mm -hmm incredible <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so those big tunnels you know that you actually like funnel the water into to create um there's all kinds of great engineering words for this that i do not possess in my vocabulary uh, pinstocks I <laughs> yes pinstocks that is there. it that's the yeah. one <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah so these pinstocks like they, they have 20 of them um they only run 18 at a time so two can be under um under maintenance but the penstocks like there was a, a full-size bus parked near one and it just it looked like from afar it just looked like this tiny car and then as we got closer <laughs> we we're like oh my gosh that's a full-size bus bus next to that penstock um this thing is huge when we were there they told us that it actually supplied a hundred percent of paraguay's power and about like 11 percent of brazil's power that's wow. an entire country <laughs> Like, uh, yeah, on their on their website, it says they actually supply 75% of Paraguay's power and 17% of Brazil's power. But, I mean, this is just huge. Um, the yearly energy generation is 98 million megawatts, also a meaningless number. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking on their website at the different, you know, turbines and the penstocks, and, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you oh. see the shaft coming out of the top of the turbine that it's probably a two- or three-foot in diameter solid steel drive shaft. Yes, ex <laughs> exactly. And you want to talk about, like, 
the hum of the dam, man, when we were standing out on that thing, it was just unreal. Like, it's terrifying to think of the amount of energy that you're capturing from that river to do this. Like, it was an impressive structure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, I think the power supply, I mean, you can talk about, like, the Grand Coulee Dam and... Glen Canyon and stuff, that's a big deal. Um, those pin stocks, like on Hoover Dam, if you're out there, if you've been there, it's those big towers that sort of sit in the river and they suck it in down at the bottom of the dam. Um, and so it's, it creates like this maelstrom where it's sucking in all this water, which is also terrifying. And um, <laughs> I think this is one of the biggest things that you can say. This is why we build dams, because they provide all this energy. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's one of the ones that it's hard to hard to fight against. But there also are a lot of dams that don't do this anymore or that this sort of energy production is being met by other means. Um, You know, whatever you think of wind energy or things like this or solar energy, which also has their own problems, too. But such is life, I guess. Um, So a lot of dams are there's a big push to take them out not like Hoover Dam or Grant Coulee, but some of these smaller dams on these rivers to let these rivers sort of run wild again and kind of repair themselves. And um, a lot of them repair themselves fairly quickly um, for some pretty big dams, like 100 foot high or something like that. I've seen like time lapse over about five years and you would have never been able to tell there was a dam there. But then when they took them out, like the sediment that would come out from that dam was just black and huge and it covered the entire landscape. So it's it's really interesting to see that on that scale and then think about these big dams like a Taipu or um, Hoover Dam. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of material here that we could go off of in the future if anybody's interested. Or <laughs> if on the off chance that we have anybody that is a dam operator or employee, yes. <laughs> we would love to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely would love to talk to you. Um, it's such, I'm super obsessed with it. There's some really great books, and I'll I'll link some of them in um, to the show notes. Because if you've ever been around the Southwest, you know, you've seen these big reservoirs and maybe wonder about them a little bit um, and what happens. And they're really interesting reads, and they're definitely worth the visit to both of those places, Glen Canyon or Hoover, if you're out in the Southwest. Yes, Absolutely. So, before we get to Fun Paper Friday, do you want to talk about our feedback that we got? Yes, I'm super excited about this, because the first question that you and I always ask each other is, do you know this person? Right. (laughs) To to see if we're actually, like, reaching out into the ether to capture people that we don't know to listen to our podcast. And Tim is one of those people. Yes. In fact, in his email, he wrote in to say that he really enjoyed the show. So, thanks for that. And uh, your check is in the mail. And... (laughs) Uh, <laughs> that he didn't think he was our target demographic. He said that that he was a mechanical engineer turned truck driver. I love that. That seems like going from, you know, academia to being like a, a true like maker in society. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And so I actually had some uh, discussions with him and we chatted a little bit about machining and all kinds of fun stuff, but it's really great to know who's listening to the show. So if you enjoy the show or you have any ideas for things that we should talk about, you should drop us a line. Absolutely. And I will go ahead and throw out, we have stickers. <laughs> I've yet to see these stickers, John. I don't believe they exist. <laughs> <laughs> so if you 
would like to send us some piece of feedback or drop us a line and send your mailing address, I am happy to send you a few stickers to stick on your Nalgene coffee, laptop, car, whatever you would like to stick them on. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you could also stick them on the um, back of your printed off copy of this week's Fun Paper Friday, right? I suppose you could. That would not be <laughs> where I would stick <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's true. Um, I didn't. Sometimes our see. transitions are a little stretched. Yeah, yeah. Well, you uh, know, you do what you can. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you picked this fun paper, and I have to say, it's uh, all you this week. <laughs> oh, um, man, I am obsessed with like microbiology. Obviously, I should rethink my career options. Um, so this paper um, comes from us. It's a Nature Communications, so it's behind a paywall. Sorry. Um, the abstract will give you what you need, though. And it is actually you- this one they paid for open access. So oh, they did. Oh, yes. Man, I'm always behind the paywall, so I never pay attention very much. <laughs> um, great. So this is eukaryotic opportunists dominate the deep subsurface biosphere in South Africa. And there are a lot of authors. Um, so Borgoni, I apologize if I mispronounce that at all. Um, and this is really cool stuff. <laughs> so this is dealing with little things that live in cave water. Or mm-hmm. mine water in this case. Right. So it's not caves. We know things live in caves. Um, but we've recently, there's been some discussion that there are actually a lot of, I even think we talked about it, you talked about it on the show, John. Um, there are a lot of bacteria that actually live sort of in the cracks and rocks, which, okay, at the surface, duh, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, deep down. And so these South African mines Everybody goes here. This is like the geologist dream, right? Because these are some of the deepest mines in the world. And so these researchers found that there are microbes living at rocks at up to 1.4 kilometers in depth. And, I mean, a lot of the study goes into how you tell the difference between these microbes. Did they just get carried down there, like, on the boots of the miners or through surface water? But these are actually in situ bacteria and, well, not a lot of bacteria, but worms and arthropods even, um, that actually live in these fissures 1.4 kilometers down. Yeah, and so they took a lot of water out of the fissures and filtered it to look for these guys. And over the total study period, which was two years, they filtered over 12.8 million liters. Yeah. That was a a meaningful number. That is quite large. (laughs) So there was some grad student or team of grad students oh, yes. who every day were filtering <laughs> hundreds of liters from these fissures in this mine. Yes. Um, so why did they do this? Well, they were looking for these, they were looking actually for DNA of these animals first off, um, which also is a large graduate undergraduate student um, <laughs> endeavor because they take this water <laughs> and they do this thing called DNA gel electrophoresis. I did this in high school, which is the reason I, know how to say it and remember it so fondly <laughs> yeah so if you watch csi when they put up some kind of weird <laughs> blue glowy looking thing with different bands in it and they're like oh yes. it's a dna match that's what it is you apply a high voltage across this and it's in some kind of agar medium and little pieces of dna move faster than big pieces in the electric field and you get it separating into these bands Exactly. And so you've got this fingerprint. Um, And so a lot of what they did to try to figure out, are these guys different than what's up on the surface? Because they 
you know, they sampled the surface water and they compared these DNAs. In addition to a bunch of other things we're going to talk about, they figured out that these guys actually do live in situ at these really deep fissures in these gold mines. And so they're living in this water that is not just surface water, so they didn't get brought down there by the surface, but it's actually really old water, which lends another piece of evidence to say that these animals live there. Um, and it's up to 12,000 years old. How do you date water? Yeah. <laughs> I love this. Um, I bring this up in class all the time because we have a lot of spring water here that's also really old, like from the Pleistocene. And so I always bring this up. How do you date water? And it has to do with looking at the isotopes of you know carbon and oxygen in the water and then comparing it to, say, the rainfall in that region or the groundwater in that region and working out those isotopic differences. And by that, it's a way that you can actually figure out how old your water is. So this is starting to come back to me. So I remember something about like Dell 018. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and mm-hmm. and it goes, it varies from the meteoric line as it becomes heavier. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think, okay, yeah, this is starting to ring <laughs> a couple of geochemical bells, the only, yeah, the only say, couple I have. I was going to uh, say, Del C-14 is probably the other the other bell that you have up there right. with you. <laughs> and so they were calling this in the paper paleo-meteoric water, which I thought oh, was a wonderful term. Me too. I highlighted that one. I'm going to be throwing that one out there a lot. Um so this works for, you know, fairly young, and we say this in a geologic time scale, fairly young water. Um, so they figured out that these little guys are in the rocks down there in this paleo meteoric water. So it's an old groundwater, not new groundwater. And so they live down there. Um, and they said it's actually not as extremophile as you would think because it's not... The water chemistry isn't super strange, which is odd because these rocks are super strange. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Really strange, in fact, Um, all through South Africa. And it doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, And that it's not, you know, it is hot down there, but it's not super hot. So it's not a big surprise they're down there. Um, One thing that they looked in a couple of different locations, and I thought this was interesting, that they found the same biota in each location despite being totally different geologic settings. Yeah. And, that was weird. Well, and they have some pictures, uh, some scanning electron microscope pictures of some of these things. <laughs> if you look cool. at figure four, it will give you nightmares. <laughs> hey, he's just got a creepy little creepy little mouth on him. It's just a worm with teeth. What's wrong with that? Yeah, so these are little <laughs> nematodes. We stick our rocks in the SEM a lot. I can't imagine looking at a nematode with teeth like this in the SEM, but mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, they did a lot of, there's a whole massive method section about the geochemistry, trying to tell the difference between, you know, meteoric versus groundwater versus this paleo meteoric water to absolutely make sure that these guys um, live down in the rock. And they actually got to do biofilm sampling using this thing called a vacuum cleaner um yeah (laughs) in some of these boreholes so you know when you're mining you drill a borehole and you explode it and that's how you get the rock to come off of you know the earth and so they gathered some of these up and also found a whole bunch of different eukaryotes and nematodes and even um some other creepy crawlies that there are cool pictures of uh that were living in these fissures and 
I say, you know, with these camera work and this SEM and all this geochemical stuff, these guys actually live down there. It's not something that just got transported. Yeah. <laughs> which is unbelievable. So there you go. This is <laughs> a paper about little worms that live over a kilometer below the earth in cracks in rocks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got, and they're absolutely right. They say this, that has really big implications for how we think of the interaction of, you know, the geosphere and the biosphere, because that's a lot deeper than we ever thought there was interaction. And um, as they also point out, this has a big implication for looking for life on other planets, right? Right, absolutely. Because, because now we know a lot more about what can yeah. live in what environments. <laughs> right, exactly. Just sticking a little uh, sticking a little camera on the surface of something and saying, nope, nobody's here, you know, versus drilling two kilometers down and saying, oh, there's a lot of little things here. Um, so that's pretty interesting. That was a cool paper, I thought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if you have a fun paper you would like us to discuss, you can send that to us, but you should also send us your limericks. That's right. The limerick <laughs> contest is still going on, but time is running down. That's right. August 12th um, is when we're going to put an end to that and collect all the limericks and get together with Dr. Katie Shear and pick a prize from Chris Taylor at Taylor Custom. Right. And... I, they're really cool prizes that he sent us. We've talked about them before, but I was just looking at the plate tectonics one again, <laughs> thinking so awesome. how cool it really is. So <laughs> if you'd like to have a little piece of plate tectonics or sedimentology or paleontology on your key ring, you should submit a limerick. And we've had some excellent ones so far. Yes. And Shannon, how can they do that? Well, you can always email us that, or if you want to send it as a voice message, please do so. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter talking about this, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And we also have a new feature now for the podcast, right? We've opened up a Slack channel. Right. So as part of the Software Underground Slack group, there is a Don't Panic Geocast channel as well as an undersampled radio channel. So you can go there and hang out with all the wonderful people on Swung, as it's called, Software mm -hmm. Underground, and just chat about whatever you would like in our channel or send us your limericks or even get some advice on your limericks because we've had people doing that. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, this is really fun because this is just something that I know John and I both sort of, as soon as we log into the computer, it's there and it's just kind of a fun thing that you can um, actually get work done with in addition to throwing out some fun geological, you know, experiments or limericks as you will throughout the day. Right. I know there was a caption contest going on on yes. the Slack earlier today that I was participating <laughs> in and having a lot of fun. So it's uh, a great distraction slash educational experience. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for us. So until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.